Ready graphics? Ready theme? People often ask me why I don't watch myself on, on TV or movies and stuff. I don't watch myself when I do plays. What, what matters to me is how you feel coming off the set. If you feel like you've done everything you can, great. Um, if you didn't, why not? Hi, it's Lauren. Hey, it's Jesse, And welcome to another interview episode of the Murphy Brown Podcast. Yes, it's a really fun interview for us in particular because it's a nice mashup of uh, Murphy Brown and another show we mention a lot. You may have heard of The West Wing. Yes. If you ever wanted a Murphy Brown West Wing mashup, this is it. Welcome to this interview. If you aren't aware already, our interview today is Richard Schiff, Emmy-winning actor from The West Wing. Also known as Toby Ziegler. But more exciting for us is that he was a guest star on Murphy Brown. Yes, which makes him perfect for this podcast. Now, during the interview, he mentioned the producers at the time. It was season six. We'll talk more about it during the interview. But just to give you some reference. Yes. So the producers at the time were Stephen Peterman and Gary Donzig, as well as Corby Siamis was credited. And if this gets you super pumped to see a lot of Richard Schiff, you don't just have to watch old episodes of Murphy Brown on the West Wing because he is in a current show. Yes, you can find Richard on The Good Doctor on ABC, which is returning this fall for season two. So please enjoy this episode. Again, please do not forget to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Murphy Brown Pod. You can also check out show notes and extra information about each episode or backlog on our website at murphybrownpod.com. And please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps the podcast. All right. So without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Bye. Bye. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Hi, I'm. my name is Brad Pitt. Oh, Brad, you're looking good. Nice you look great. You no, this is Richard Schiff um, of Murphy Brown fame. Yes. <laughs> Well, you are famous to us for multiple reasons, but before we get into your your very long and still going career, we'd love to hear a little bit about your origin stories as an artist, uh, director and actor. It's too long and complicated. Um, It's a very circuitous route I took uh, to get to this desk in this moment talking to you guys. But uh, um, I don't even know how to begin to describe it, but it's... uh, I wasn't four years old wanting to be on Broadway dancing and singing in musicals. That wasn't my path. But I was always very curious about um, why, as a kind of lonely, unhappy child, I was so taken taken by um, plays and movies uh, and, and even music uh, and put into a trance. And I loved being in that trance. I think it's why other people who are struggling turn to heroin <laughs> to be honest um to me it was the trance of being taken by a story that that elevated me out of whatever hole i was in and i scientifically was just very curious as to why um sometimes uh i'd be taken into this trance and sometimes not and and even if it was the same director and the same actors in a similar kind of movie you know so i was always very curious about that that's all I can say. And so uh, in my stumbling journey through schools and various you know, private schools and public schools in New York and um, going to night school to get out of high school because uh, I didn't like school too much and then going to City College and leaving there and living in Colorado and um, 
coming back and I kind of fell backwards into the theater program there and then fell harder backwards into the professional training program. And there was um, no rhyme or reason for it. You know, I, I went, I took a theater class and, and lo and behold, the, we were rehearsing plays, you know, from Arthur Miller and whatever. And, um, and all of a sudden uh, they, I was talking to girls. So that was, that was a good common theme we hear. <laughs> So being pathologically quiet and reclusive, uh, that was a good thing, I thought. And um, uh, then I took an acting class from a woman named Carol Thompson, who had been on Broadway, directed by Ulu Grosbard, which impressed me because I had seen Ulu Grosbard direct American Buffalo with Robert Duvall and John Savage and my favorite oh, wow. character actor, Kenneth McMillan, of those days. Mm. And um, But she was a horrible teacher. And then... Uh, just so happened to uh, uh, be being directed by the directing class in the theater department. And the teacher of that class told me that there was a professional training program at City College called the Davis Center Performing Arts, and I should audition. So I had a friend, my best friend, who actually was a roommate named Stephen Fetter. He um, knew all about this stuff. He was, even though he was a high school basketball player at Forest Hills High School, and a tennis freak, he was first and foremost a theater um, loon. And me and his girlfriend took him to Chorus Line, the original Chorus Line. We could only afford oh, yeah. standing room tickets for his birthday, and then the damn record played in, my, in our apartment for the next four months every every time we came home. So, but so I asked him. I said they want me to audition, and just for fun, he would go. He would always say, "You should be an actor." Blah blah blah. For whatever reason. And um, he gave me this audition uh, uh, from Jules Pfeiffer's uh, Little Murders, which is a play that I remember. Um, Jules Pfeiffer was a cartoonist and a, and, a, and a playwright. And very oddly enough, I told the story to his daughter, Kelly Pfeiffer, who is now a playwright, whose play I might do sometime soon. And um, she was very tickled by the story. Anyway, I did this monologue. I had no idea what I was doing. These two guys were judging me. Um, and uh, Every now and then they would laugh, and I would stop and look up and, like, what are you doing? I'm trying to read this thing. And when it was over, uh, one of them said, why are you so nervous? And I said, because I've never done this before. And he said, well, why do you want to be an actor? And I said, I don't want to be an actor. And he said, well, what are you doing here? This is a training program. Uh, it's three years of your life. Why do you want to come? And I said, I don't know. I just... Um, I don't know. It might help I write. Maybe it'll help my writing. So he became my mentor, and his name was Earl Gister, who later went on to run the Yale School of Drama for about 14 years. And I come from Carnegie Mellon, the president of professional training uh, uh, program throughout the country, and had auditioned many, many, many thousands of people before in that um, uh, in that capacity. And about two years later, I was I was sitting in his office and we we're talking about life and theater and art and all these things. And I would I would get a big tub of really bad coffee from the cafeteria, and I'd smoke his Lucky Strikes with him. And um, we'd sit there and talk. And at one point, I went, "Wow, why did you let me into this program? There's all these kids from the high school of performing arts who showed up in tights, and then me with you know, because because of all the years of." Doing this, I'd never had anyone in the interview be so honest. 
So I thought I'd take a chance. So that's how I backdoored <laughs> my way into this thing. And it was still just curiosity. I didn't really want to act. I didn't like acting in his class. It was too harrowing. It was too nerve wracking. But I loved studying what other people were doing. And, um, and I ended up directing a play in that program, which was quite a moving experience for me for many reasons, which is too long to get into. And then, um, started out, and then I did the first session after college, I, uh, got the part. I went into, for a small part, ended up with the lead role in a beautiful play by James Baldwin called Lucia Mr. Charlie. It paid $35 a show, which was shocking. My first job was a paying job. And I had to get to the theater in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, um, about 12, about eight hours before curtain at noon so that I could begin trying to distress and <laughs> relax because I was so full of fear. And while the production was very successful and people were asking me to join their companies and so on, I just thought this, this, this business of acting is too painful. So I, I abandoned it. I abandoned it. And um, pursued other things. So I stage managed a little bit. I assistant directed. And then I started my own theater company in New York. And um, was directing plays. And uh, that's what I did throughout my 20s. And it wasn't until later on. And it really came about because I was curious why certain actors from this particular teacher were directable. In the but directable was the, was the key. And he knew me because I was casting all and hiring all his actors, all his graduates. And he, he invited me to talk to him, and I talked to him, and he goes, you're an interesting fellow, you should take my class. I'm like, well, I don't want to be an actor, you should take my class anyway. So I took this three-year program with William <laughs> Esther. Who was mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, wonderful teacher. He's now considered a master teacher, and he and as well, I guess. And that's what began the journey back into acting, and... uh my classmates wanted to produce a play. They knew I had hundreds of plays, you know, from my theater company. And we did a couple, we picked a couple of plays. I, I was the lead in one of them, I, uh, a comedy, a farce. And it was a big hit off, off Broadway. We moved it to off Broadway. And, uh, you know, I began the ridiculous, uh, pursuit of this, um, silly business. And I was in my thirties, so I started very late. Yeah, we hear that a lot from mm-hmm. um, what, you know, we would consider ourselves character actors, and I think you would too, that tend to start late in life, but then you have a longer career. Mm-hmm. I don't, th- I never thought about career. That's the one thing I never thought about. That's probably helpful. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it doesn't interest me. I never had a, I didn't have a resume. I didn't have like a picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, at one point, uh, I, had, I got an agent at some point and you need a picture, I don't have one. Well, go get a maid. I went, no. And I said, here, this is a wedding picture. And take this. this is... So it's, uh, uh, the idea was absurd to me to walk around, you know. And I had heard about, you know, I, my girlfriend of nine years in New York, her mother had found a theater in the street in New York, which is where they did Shakespeare and Moliere in a flatbed truck and took it all around New York. and and, and um, she was quite a phenomenal lady. From, and she was from England. She married a GI. She was going to be the next great Shakespearean ingenue. And she married a GI from Tennessee, half Cherokee, moved to the Lower Side. He was a union organizer. And she found founded theater in the street. Ralph Julia, Billy D. Williams got their oh, start. Yeah. She used to use 
And she had people like Morris Barnowski and Phoebe Brand from the group theater. And the pictures and the artifacts in her apartment were phenomenal. I was riveting these, these uh, people hanging from fire escapes. And even the dogs were riveted by whatever, you know, if there was a rat in the corner, he was riveted. Everyone was riveted to the stage. Photographs were amazing. And um, uh, what was the point of this? So why did I go into her and I forget. I don't know. It's fa- it's, it's, it's all just fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, just we're talking about nothing about career point. ahead What's that it? way. Say again. Oh, you were talking about not oh, uh, yeah. looking at career trajectory, but I suppose just doing oh. the work. Oh yeah, definitely is. Yeah, and that she had a stack of uh, resumes in her closet, along with photographs and manuscripts and all these things. And I went through them, and I found, you know, I had already directed through much of my twenties, and so I'm used to getting these silly pictures and resumes. With People, this is me with a mustache, and this is me with a hat and a mustache. This is me with a hat, glasses, and a mustache, all with the same smile. And um, yeah, little little doctor said this. Found one of those resumes, and it had this is me and a mustache, this is me with glasses, blah blah blah, and it had all the leading angry men of that era. You know, look back in anger and John Osborne and all this, all of these. And I went, I looked at it, and it, these are all lives. I was used to catching the lives of actors would make up these theaters and make up these, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. thought of as, and these were all lives. You could tell. So it was something studio theater, you know, and all the great young, angry leading man roles, you know, and the picture in the front, you know who it was? It was Robert De Niro. Oh, cool. I love stories yeah. like that. First, later, that Robert De Niro we always used to pound the streets. He'd, like even when he was doing Mean Streets with Scorsese, he would, lunch he would go find other film sets and drop off his resume. And you know, and, you know Dustin Hoffman. I mean, I've worked with a lot of these guys later on in life, and Martin Sheen and Al Pacino. They were they were all objective, goal oriented, and driven. And uh, you know, Al uh, and Martin. Who, uh, you know, clean bathrooms together at the uh, living theater, Julian Eckstein. Uh, you know, and, and Dustin Hoffman, you can tell from Tootsie, understood what it was, what, what being an actor meant to him. And, um, never, I never had that. I, it was just curiosity. Until we got pregnant, that I got serious about making money. <laughs> well, that makes sense. <laughs> that suddenly you're, we're looking more at the numbers than just the art itself. And that's when it was, yeah, well, that's when the stupidity kind of got knocked out of me because when I first came out here, uh, I was somewhat, uh, enraged by the process of, you know, dancing in, in, in front of a bunch of suits that sold soap for a living. Mm hmm. Yeah, it sounds like um, when you said soap, it reminded me of an interview I just actually watched with you because I, I know, skipping ahead a little bit, that you had to be convinced to go to your West Wing test, right? Because you had not showed up for a bunch of tests. I had passed on. Like, I finally figured out the audition thing. Uh, and uh, I was getting kind of everything at one point. And um, it took me a while. As I said, I was very maddened by the process at first and then I went and then I kind of figured it out and and so the year before there were four different shows that wanted to assign me for test deals and I, I guess I, I I agreed to the test and then I wouldn't show up yeah because I would imagine myself you know spending seven years 
with uh, one of them was a superintendent of a New York building with all these kids. That was the sitcom. And the kids pick on the on the super, and I just imagine getting hit with spitballs for <laughs> yep. six years. I was on the ABC building, and I and I just couldn't go in. It wasn't like I was being rude. I just couldn't yeah. physically mm-hmm. get myself to do it. And I didn't know that until that moment. You know, I just I just went, and I thought, you know, let me just take this moment by moment, which is the way we should take things, I think. And uh, they got so mad they were going to give me the job anyway. <laughs> what? That was it. You have a lot of good luck, it seems. Um, and then, uh, and then one of those shows was for NBC. And yeah, so the following year, uh, Western came along and I knew it was a great pilot. I didn't know Aaron except from Sports Night. And, uh, to be honest, wasn't crazy about that show. Um, I appreciated the work in it, but didn't really have a desire to watch it much. And, um, but I knew the show was great and I had worked with Tommy Shlami before and, but there was a movie that I was supposed to be doing with Vin Vendors and, uh, they conflicted and, um, and I was asked, which one do you want to, you know, which one do you want to do? They both happen. I said, well, the network will never hire me because I didn't show up last year and they got really angry. So NBC will never hire me. So there's no doubt I'd rather do the movie anyway. And then the movie fell through. And then um, I went to to the auditions, kind of thinking this will this is silly because they hate me. But uh, Tommy um, was very loving and very encouraging, and uh, you know, he, I, I told him I might not show up to the to the test. And he says, "Yeah, I heard." <laughs> and I said, uh, and he, he says, "I hope you do." And it was very sweet. And so I I did really because of him. And then I think on the way out that day, I saw Alice and Janney uh, waiting to audition for this. was another round of auditions. And I didn't, she didn't know me, but I'd seen her in some plays in New York and um, off of Broadway. And, um, and, uh, and of course, was a fan of hers from a couple of movies by then. Primary Colors, I remember. Yeah. yeah. So I went, oh, wait a second. These guys hire her. They'll never hire her. If they hire her, then these guys know what they're doing. But they'll never hire her. I didn't think they were smart enough to hire. <laughs> Fair. Turns out I was I was wrong, to, and, and and rightfully so, and and luckily so. Well, um, I guess going back to 1994, indeed, since that's the the focus of most of uh, our our the podcast and mm-hmm. the interview. What do you remember about um, maybe your first audition for Murphy Brown, or just being on set? I mean, I know it was a while ago, but what are your your me- memories of that? I remember every detail of it. Great. Phenomenal. You're the perfect guest. <laughs> that was the reason that, uh, that was the son, uh, year my son was conceived. Good year. And this was, I'm pretty sure, before um, before the crowning of the head, before he came out. Um, and I had also uh, busted my knee. I had the ACL snapped oh, uh, playing, playing baseball. And... Um, and I had a choice of, uh, of, uh, getting surgery, which would be like a five at that, in those days, a five or six month rehab. Nowadays, it's you're back on your feet, you know, two days later. But in those days, it was, it was a struggle. Like very few athletes ever came back from that injury back then. Now they come back from it all the time. So, and then I went in 
deciding about this uh, uh, on this audition for Murphy Brown. And this was at a time when I was beginning to get the auditions. But I was in some pain and I was uh, I think I was on crutches. And there was something about there was something about that audition that actually triggered um, another level of understanding of what this acting thing was all about. Because I was so focused, not focused, but I was, uh, I was, I was aware of something else going on in my body, like the, the pain in my knee, that it freed up the work. Hmm. And the work just flew out. And, uh, I remember the guys, and I, I won't remember their names, but, uh, the producers right away were like, are you free next week? Are you, are you available? Listen, if the leg, if yeah, what's happening with the leg? If you get surgery, we'll figure it out. We'll we'll make the guy, you know, be on crutches, whatever. You know, it's they were desperate to have me do this role, which didn't happen to me very often. But there was something about what happened in that uh, audition, quite accidentally, which I've never forgotten. And it's just, and it's it's hard for me to describe. But it's some physical thing where where that where my mind was busy on something else. And it's it's what what an independent activity mm-hmm. might, might do. Yeah. It's what, it's what um it's what uh it's not it it's it I don't even know how to describe it. But it's um I've never forgotten. And um and uh and so I got the job like immediately and uh went on set and I don't think I was on crutches anymore. Uh but uh but I I'm still limping. And um I kept that feeling that I had in the audition, and it was. I remember the other cast people. I remember um, um, Candace Bergen stopping and uh, the read through, just kind of stopping and looking at me like I was some kind of Martian. <laughs> I took that as a compliment yeah. because I don't. Um, years later, I, I ran into her, and she had no recollection of me. I didn't make that much impact. Um, but I remember people reacting, and I, I, I clocked when people really reacted to something. It wasn't what I, I was worried about, but when they really reacted to something, I clocked and said, okay, I'm clicking at something here. Let me make sure I keep it. And then I remember my, my girlf- girlfriend, even though we were pregnant, she my fiancé, I guess you could say, and my friend Ellie came to the, came to the shoot that week, and um, it was just one scene, but it was a really funny scene. It's a very it's funny, a great scene. scene. Yeah, I was actually going to say that that scene. It's interesting that you had that that discovery in in your performance style because yeah. that scene is really dependent on strong moment to moment work. Like everything that Mel does is something's happening, and there's an immediate switch and an immediate switch. And if you're thinking too far ahead, you wouldn't be able to sell that. Yeah, Mel was his name. Mel Woodworthy. Yes, you had a first name and a last name, which is oh. impressive for a for a single scene. Oh, yeah, worthy. I totally would not have known. You. Oh, Mel. <laughs> well, we have it all here. So, um, this episode, "Anything But Cured," aired March fourteenth, nineteen ninety four. So we're in season six. It was episode twenty one, directed by uh, Lee Shalit Kamel, who's an amazing director. Yeah. I'd love to talk about you working with her, but. It was written by Russ Woody, who we actually have interviewed on the show before, mm-hmm. and he spoke very highly of you, and he was also mostly impressed because when you did Becker, uh, you remembered him, mm-hmm. yeah, that I, he had written this episode. I remember Russ Woody. I remember him. Uh, uh, yeah, I remember him. I, he, I guess he must have been in the room 
when I first auditioned. I don't remember those faces because I was focused on, you know, doing my work. Yeah. Later on, I, I was, uh, uh, yeah, I liked him a lot. I liked him a lot. And, uh, yeah, he was a good. He writes some of our favorite characters. Yeah. <laughs> he tends to write very character specific stuff. He was on Becker later. He was writer yes. on Becker. Okay. Becker was one of those shows at actually the year before the West Wing where I auditioned and they wanted me to be they didn't even get a test deal they just were offering me because it was uh like seven out of 13 or 13 out of 22 whatever they did and we were going to make a deal if they let me go and do movies because that's what i wanted to do and then right when we we're making the deal i said okay he needs august off because he's got a film in august and they went oh no we need him in august and so that deal fell through so i didn't and so i was lucky because becker would have been the show that I was on, and West Wing. Oh, as a series regular. Oh, wow! Wow. But I ended up going back as a guest star at some sort for a role that was very different but similar to the role that they originally wanted me for, and it didn't quite work. I remember it was very. Uh, it was a very odd experience in that regard. That that role didn't work for me at all. But uh, I really liked them. They're really like Russ, and of course, I like Ted quite a bit. And that whole cast back over. Do you remember working with Lee? I mean, she she's done um, so much television mm-hmm. and one of the rare women to direct, you know, comedy as well. Yeah. Do you remember working with her? Um, I I vaguely remember. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I um no. I I wasn't necessarily struck that a woman was directing because this was one of my first sitcoms, so I didn't know how usual or unusual that was. Um. So it didn't strike me as anything unusual. Um, I just remember the Murphy Brown being a good experience, you know. And I remember getting applause each time I exited. And, you know, we shot it. We shot it. Yeah, you do. We always pay attention to when the big, the uncontained applause happens yeah. on the show. The moments that the audience is really surprised and into it. And your exit is one of those where everyone clearly has to pause and wait because the audience is so thrilled by Mel finally making a decision. Yeah. No, I remember it, and it happened like the second time we shot it. So I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And uh, the only reason I, I remembered it is because I went, wow, Sheila and Ellie are probably really impressed. It was my, my girlfriend, my, my now wife, and uh, my friend Ellie. Um, I, I just remembered it as, as being really good experience, like I'm talking about them. From the, from the first moment I went into the room to audition, they were really nice and um uh which which I appreciated in those days and um and then the complete professionalism on the set for actors that I had watched and like admired and I forget all their names but um are they all coming back to the they all are except uh Charles Kimbrough who um you know has earned his retirement um he's uh they were, there's word on the street that we might see him come in for a guest appearance you see the which one? Jim. He played Jim, the anchor. Yeah. The old school anchor. Yeah. yeah. So Candace Bergen, who played Murphy, Joe Ragabuto, who played Frank, oh. Grant Shaw, who played Miles, and uh, Faith Ford, who played Corky, are returning. They're all back. Faith. Yeah. And there's a couple of new cast members. And there was another guy. Was he a recurring? Who was the other guy? Uh, well, there's there's either Eldon, who's the painter, or Phil, who ran the bar, and they are both um, past. No, it's uh, a guy who's... Uh, he was he was on that show, so maybe he wasn't a regular, and I can't remember his name. 
But uh, he was. You know, trying to think who else was in the episode with you. Well, uh, what, what was his name? Fun. What was the painter? Eldon Robert Pastorelli. Robert Pastorelli. Yeah. Pastorelli. We did the first table read of um, of Glengarry Glen Ross, the film. Really, really. Uh, Al Pacino and Jack Lemmon, and someone had seen me in a play and invited me to do the table read, which almost, which led to very close to doing that movie and uh, didn't quite happen. Years later, I ended up doing the play with Al Pacino. Where he played Shelley, the Jack Lemmon role, and not Roma, the role he played in the movie. Anyway, uh, I remember Rob Pastorella, who I really loved on on, on uh, Yeah, he was a wonderful actor. Incredible. I feel like I've been asking a lot of questions. Oh, too, no. <laughs> um, well, I actually wanted to just ask about um, how much you remember of, of Mel Woodworthy and his why he was in the therapist office in your episode. Not a lot. <laughs> so he come, it opens with him talking about his wife trying to get him to just choose Chinese or Italian. Oh, the and he, yeah, <laughs> I remember. He just can't decide. Oh my God. Ah. It's a very delightful um, episode. And what I love is I see a lot of uh, your, your personality quirks. I think this is something that ties into the uh, being told that you were the most honest person they'd had. Was we, it's such a it's such a real person, oh. and watching you get shadowed, you get sandwiched between Candace Bergen yes. and Joe Regabuto and the therapist yeah. <laughs> all at once. Somebody said they all barge into the uh, yeah. And do I then throw a fit of some sort, or do I just you try? <laughs> yes, you don't. You you there's too much fear in Mel, unfortunately, yeah. and he's unable to really make a real decision, which is where the comedy comes from. Yeah. And then finally turns around, then you kind of ask Murphy for feedback. And if you're making the right decision, then you say, you don't care. And then you storm out and the audience goes wild. Uh, yeah, and Deborah Mooney, um, I don't know if you remember, plays the therapist mm-hmm. um, who has an extended career on TV as well. Who plays the therapist? Deborah Mooney. Deborah? Yes. Deborah Mooney. Mm. She, she's, uh, she was on uh, Everwood as a series regular. She's done tons of television. She's one of those people you go, oh, yep. She's amazing. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The names, the, the names are uh, terrible. The names. I'm too busy noticing quirks and behavior, and I always, even if I say, I'm sorry, can you repeat your name again? I'm watching how they give me the name and not. And then, well, you're a director. I always forget to hear the name, so I, I'm terrible. I do too, and I, I when when uh, someone feels bad, they don't remember my name. I, I always say, listen, I'd rather that you remember our conversation and exactly. what we talked about, and me as a person, than my name, because exactly, you're focusing on what they're saying, and mm-hmm. just kind of goes out the window. And uh, the more information, the more data that's programmed into your brain, uh, the slower it takes for the computer to work. And um, um, unless you use drugs to help, you know, boot, boot up your speed. Um, and so when I get introduced now, when I'm at these functions, it takes me like, you know, I have, it, it's like I got to go through a file that's really thick. Um, and people get upset that I don't, and, and, my, and I, I can't hide it. I look at them like I have no idea who you are. And then like two minutes later, I go, oh my God, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> that happens to me too. Yeah. Well, um, I went to the uh, actor's studio and James Lipton would just call everybody kid. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, just, so you, you just everyone pick was a kidding thing that yeah. you do. Then I realized, oh, he doesn't know my name. Aren't you called, called everybody Red? <laughs> <laughs> Red. Well, I actually, I have a question that's a bit of a, 
a Murphy West Wing crossover and something that we've discussed. Uh, one of the things that stands out to us and we got very spoiled with as uh, young TV watchers was the, the very platonic friendship between Murphy Brown and Frank Fontana on Murphy Brown. And we also talked about the arguably platonic relationship between Toby and CJ mm. from them. But we were wondering if you had any thoughts on, on Toby and CJ's relationship and how that to, uh, Candace and Frank, the platonic male, female relationship in nineties yeah. television. Yeah. So what we talk about is it that that relationship on television, even today is very rare yes. to have a male, female platonic relationship. And since there aren't, that many we actually reference cj and toby a lot because it's the only one that we really have Mm -hmm. so i guess what we're asking is if if you might want to talk a little bit about in general platonic you know relationships on television in reference to your own with cj yeah i don't um i don't uh i've not thought about that much to be honest um that's okay yeah i think keep thinking of cheers and every time there was there's a temp for platonic relationships. They couldn't, they couldn't hold. Yeah. Um, but, uh, where else would there have been some, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, Mary Tyler Moore show. Yes. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. We didn't think of that. Or Ernest Murphy. Mary. <laughs> Lou and Mary, Murray and Mary. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, that was my go-to. That was my favorite, um, TV show, uh, for many reasons. Uh, but mostly because it was on in New York from 1 a.m. to 2.30 in the morning in reruns. Oh, oh, that makes sense. And um, uh, and uh, I, I think it actually prevented many suicides, to be honest. Um, I was always a night worker when I was driving a cab or working in law firms, proofreading or whatever. And then if I was directing a play, I would always take time out when doing my work at 1 in the morning to watch an hour and a half, three episodes of Maritime Moore. Um, and I, you know, I, I guess I don't, I don't really, uh, I never really thought about that. And with, um, with, uh, CJ and Toby, uh, they, they had a special, uh, connection. And I think it was reflective of uh, Allison and, and, and me and, um, how much we loved working with each other and how much we connected off, offset. Um, and we've always had a lovely platonic relationship. So I don't, um, that we truly adore each other and, and have not, no, no issues with that whatsoever. So, um, I mean, I know she really wants to see me in bed, but it's not going to happen. You can, you just can't help. You can't help your animal attraction. Um, uh, and so on, on, uh, in the West Wing, uh, it didn't seem like a big deal to me uh, because they were they were coworkers and they had to they had to uh, they had to forge a relationship that was productive and constructive and um, and I think what got in their way of the work was at times uh, maybe their their uh, you know Aaron certainly picked it up and wrote it sometimes if she was in trouble she would come to me. Private. Similarly, I think when I was in trouble, she somehow was the one that was available. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, I don't. I don't have a lot, a lot of thoughts on it. I think it's just, it was just, just the way it was written. It was the way the construction. Of yeah. The, well, it meant a lot to us. It, it meant a lot to us, and I think part of it is, you know, the the ever 
ever-present when Harry met Sally arguments about if it can be possible. But I think when we talk about representation, I think that was a that was a relationship that wasn't often represented. And it was, I think, very, very validating for those of us who do have platonic, you know, relationships that we got to see that there. And it, it wasn't commented on. It just was a fact that we saw in front of us. And we got spoiled with Murphy and with Mary Tyler Moore and with the West Wing to see that. And we, we don't see it as much now. Mm. And what about I think it was something that was valuable. Did they all sleep with each other in friends eventually? Or? Yeah, 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 pretty much. <laughs> they did, really? Or tried to date. Yeah. yeah. E- even um, okay. a Joey even and Rachel. Phoebe tried oh, yeah. to date, I think. Oh, no, well, yeah, them too. Yeah. But yeah, well, uh, well, it's been a while, though. Seinfeld, even though they had a relationship yes. early on, they were very clearly mm-hmm. platonic friends the rest mm-hmm. of the way. And she was... Well, there was one episode where they tried it again. They did try it again, it just yeah. did, but it didn't but work. The, but the fundamental uh, <laughs> yeah, definition of true. their relationship was platonic. Yeah, it was. It yeah. D- this was not going to be out about a will they, won't they kind of scenario. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's more that we just didn't. I guess we haven't really thought it out. That one's it, <laughs> We're do a whole. That one's got to be my favorite one. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. What are their names? Jerry and and. Uh, Jerry and Elaine. and Elaine. I do love their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Elaine, she was so amazing. She's amazing in everything, but she was amazing. Yeah. In that role. Yeah. So going a bit back to uh, 1994, now your particular episode of Murphy Brown is a little famous because, or infamous, because Bob Newhart is in it. Yeah. I totally forgot that. Well, you don't have any scenes with him. Yeah. <laughs> so they may, I don't know if they filmed it later, but her secretary is Marsha Wallace. Yeah playing her character from the Bob Newhart show. Yep. And then at the end of the episode, Bob Newhart brings, takes her back to his job. It's a great little crossover. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I totally forgot that stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's I wonder if maybe they may have filmed it maybe before, you know, your scenes. I don't know. They I may have done a that. special filming just yeah. for Bob. No, but it, no I, I, I remember it all now. I don't remember meeting him. So um, maybe they filmed it differently, but I remember seeing it. Uh, I might've been just so like, you know, tunnel focused on my own stuff sure. at that time. And in pain. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Nerve wracking, big, big sitcom. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily a, a comic actor by definition, you know? So, uh, uh, but now, now that you mentioned it, I go, Oh my God. Yeah. Of course. Uh, and, and the secretary, she was, she was yeah. a lovely character. But do you remember, um, working on love and war that same year? I remember that well, because, uh, that was, I was on that show when I got the, the beep on a, my beeper, which I had never owned before. It was the first beep I had ever gotten in my life. And I'm sitting, in those days, they put you in a little cubicle. Like they would stack cubicles where they would put the kind of lowly guest stars, not the real guests, the, lone, the lowly ones like me. They were really like little prison by like solitary boxes, you know, like punishment like holes and uh beep went off and i jumped up and hit my head that's all and uh yeah my son was having a uh my, my sheila was having an emergency c-section but and i told them you know because when the uh this is why the stupidity goes out of your head when you get pregnant because the male, the male response, the male hormonal response to pregnancy is, I gotta go make money and I gotta, I gotta go. So I was just at the movie City Hall in New York right before this. This came along and I was like, I got, I'm gonna, you know, but, but we might give birth this week. 
we'll figure it out. I gotta, I gotta work. I gotta work. And sure enough, uh, then they knew that Sheila was, you know, imminent or Gus was imminent. And, um, apparently I came back on set after getting the beat and they all looked at me. They were rehearsing and they all, and Bob Bollinger was the director who I knew from theater in New York. So he was a friend and he saw my face and all the, the women, uh, um, what was that? Much like? Uh, Joanna Gleason, Gleason mm-hmm. who I lo- adore. Yeah, uh, Annie, Annie Potts. Potts. Mm-hmm. And one of them, so Bob Olinger goes, go, go, just go. We'll figure it out. Just go. Because they saw my face. They knew what was up. And I said, it's an emergency C-section. They said, go, go. And either Annie Potts or Joanna Gleason, and I don't know which one of them may or may not have kids, but one of them yelled out, I had a C-section. It'll be okay. As I was writing out it. <laughs> Said I heard it in a kind of a uh, you know a Doppler effect. It was fading as I was going further away from it. It might have been Joanna Gleason. I've met her son, and he would be about the right age for her to know that already. I drove like the New York City taxi driver was to St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica for my guest. I think we were in CBS Raptor, and um, you know made it. And I had one scene on that show. Lovely. It was it was um, uh, what's his name? Is the 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 guy who just passed sadly. Jay, Jay Thomas. Thomas. Jay Thomas was very sweet. He uh the radio guy. He was a real sweet guy. And um and I uh I had one scene and I was like the insurance guy and I, all I did was come on to the set on the bar and go, Hi, I am the insurance man, Bob. And that was and, and I had a short little scene. It wasn't particularly funny. And um and I and it was when my son was born, obviously it worked out okay. And you know how the modern delivery is. Everyone showed up. So there's all these people you have to deal with, you know, friends, family, and everyone's passing the baby along. And, you know, and so I'm trying to help get them on the nipple and all those kind of things you do. And um, uh, and I'm sitting, and every now and then I go, oh, shit, I have to work tomorrow. And I would check my, because tomorrow, the next day was the shoot day. And I check my uh, lot, my scene, and I go, I, I know that. It's fine. And then I've spent all night in the hospital, and we went home, I think, early in the morning, I think, whatever. And then at some point, I go to work, and, I, and I'm and I'm shooting this thing. And I don't know if people understand the male response to this, to the actual birth, is that your brain empties out. Because you, ha- you have a whole baby that's got to replace everything you think about in your brain you now have to protect life and that takes over and so i my scene was coming up and it was there it was and i looked the cue light came on and i looked at the cue light and i said to myself i have no idea what i'm gonna say when i go out there and i went out there i remembered something about insurance and i go hi i'm the insurance fan Harry. And then I cut. It was Bob. And then I couldn't get, I could not get right. I couldn't. Well, it's actually Lester. Get, so you still can't get it right. I could, what's that? <laughs> I, I, I was making a joke. His name is actually Lester. So you, I said you still can't Lester's, get it right. <laughs> his name is Lester. <laughs> but Bob 
is funnier, honestly. Actually, yeah. Bob is funnier. That, it wasn't funny. So, Listen, it was a long time ago. Don't worry about it. So Bob Oldenburg comes up to me after like seven takes and he goes, hey, you were really funny yesterday. Just do that. And of course, that made uh-huh. me more nervous. And um, we had to let it go and shoot it again at three o'clock in the morning when everybody left and the audience was that's oh. how oh wow now that's happened before um uh in those days uh who's the guy my brain is a little fried right now i'm on it's okay where we got you i have no coffee and no tobacco and and my brain doesn't function without those things so i um i don't remember anybody's name but uh who's the guy we call producer of curb your enthusiasm the place is manager. Oh, um, the the one from the Goldbergs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, why can't I think of his name? Hold on. I'll Google it. Yeah. We all have the... We're all doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Google, Google. Thank God for Google. Jeff Garland. Yeah, Jeff Garland. So Jeff... <clears throat> um, so uh, uh, I think I ran into Jeff at Shea Stadium in New York. I was doing a batting practice. What were you doing at Shea Stadium? I know, I'm a Yankee fan, but I... I was like, look at your Sorry, hat. Sorry, I also come from a, a Yankee family, so. I was doing a, a batting practice charity. Okay, all right. Oh, allowed. Yeah, Jeff, or, or I was there for a Met-Yankee game. Okay, that makes sense. I should have guessed that. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in the, in, uh, in the Yankee box, like right next to the dugout. And anyway, I, so I see Jeff Garland, and I walk up to him, and I go, uh, hey, man, I really, you know, it's so much fun on curve. And he goes, Richard. I go, what? He goes, Richard. I go, you don't remember me. And I go, no, but you were on my sitcom when he had his own sitcom. And he, and, and to this day, he talks about it. We just, we ran into each other with the upfronts and we told the story to my wife in a bus going from the hotel to the upfronts. And, um, and he hated the show and it was like, it wasn't funny at all. And I was new to this. It was one of the first jobs I got. Uh, it was before Murphy Brown by a lot. And, um, and I remember I had a, I got a BMW at an auction that a friend of mine convinced me to buy that didn't make it four blocks before it would break down. So I never made it to work. I'd always have to call them and they'd send transpo to pick me up. And so they hated me just for that. And, um, I couldn't remember my lines because in those days, uh, I mean, and it's still, it's just problematic. If it had made no sense, yeah. I couldn't remember them. Like, no matter how many times I went around the logic of these words, they, 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 no human being would say them, even in a farce or a cartoon or a fantasy. I just, and they weren't funny. So I couldn't, I, and, uh, and the struggle of getting to work on, and being in this new environment, I'm on a set and, and being around people that are not, it's not, and it was surreal in a, in a kind of bad dream sense. And, um, couldn't remember any. And Jeff Garland went at Chase Stadium. He said, you don't remember me. I go, no. He goes, you were on my show. You didn't know any of your lines. It was, I'll never forget it. It was one of the great days that I had on that show. No matter how many times we did it, you didn't remember anything. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, so that's, that was another sitcom that I, that, that didn't go well. Now, didn't I hear that Alice and Jenny gave you a trick for line memorizing? 
Yeah, I also um, had this trick when she did Shakespeare of um, putting um, the first letter of every word, capitalizing it, and just writing the first letter uh, so that when you write that out, so to be or not to be would be T B O N T B. So that when you saw it on the page, you would remember to be or not to be. Yeah. Um, uh, and it works for, it work, doesn't work for everything. It works for things like Aaron Sorkin or Shakespeare or even a little bit of David Mamet sometimes because there's, there's meter and there's poetry. Mamet's more like jazz poetry, but there's still, there's still a rhythm to it. And, and you can recognize alliteration or, uh, you know, um, patterns in the uh, language based on seeing that first word. And that's how I learned. I did a one-man play once, which was maybe seven minutes long. Impossible to learn, and I wrote it all out. And that was, and that, that that took me about four days to just write. Sure, just that's write a lot of text. Was that under the lintel? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that at, uh, at George Street. You were wonderful in it. You're kidding. Yeah. In New Brunswick. Yeah. Well, I used to work in uh, this when I was uh, saving for grad school. I actually sold subscriptions in the basement of the George Street Playhouse. I'm from New Jersey, so it wasn't a large trip for from the city to come in and and, and see you. Plus, I I never seen you on stage, and I'd wanted to see it. It was a beautiful play. We ended up taking it to London. You seem to work a lot in the West End. Is that yeah? Is that just a coincidence, or you just do you prefer it over the New York stage? Yeah, that's. Uh, after I, uh, you know, the reviews came out for that play that quite, um, kind of, uh, special from what I hear. I, I never read them, but I was certainly told that. And, um, and so I, and I've got offers to do the play all over the country. And I said, no, I only want to do it in London. And I don't know why, but I just wanted, I just had in my head, I wanted to do it in London. And it, um, didn't necessarily happen. Until I was invited to do a golf tournament in Wales, um, which I was paid for. It was a, uh, all kind of a writer's cup, all-star cup kind of competition between American celebrities and European celebrities. I, I still have very good friends from that, from that four days in Ireland and in England and, um, uh, that I still golf with and still see. But, um, I also met a very young producer. Who just asked me, what's your next thing? What are you doing next? And I said, well, there's this play that I want to get done. And he goes, well, give it, give it to me. And then he set up a meeting uh, in London with uh, a producer. Also with, uh, I won't remember her name, but she's the big producer in uh, on the West End. So I had just two meetings. And I met the big kahuna uh, and didn't like her. And I loved the other the other producer, Carol Winters, was her name. So it was golf that ended up get, taking me to London. But I love the audiences there so much. You know, like in New Jersey, I, I had a bad night or two. And yet the response was still a standing ovation. No matter what I did, I had heard the play was, you know, supposed to be great. And it's like they didn't pay attention. And I kind of, it was weird. In London, the response was exactly proportional to the experience. On a mediocre night, some people would stand, you know, some people wouldn't. It was, you know, it was three, you know, whatever curtain, the number of curtains. And then when it was, 
great. And the, and the, and it got, it got more amazing as time went on for me and for them and for, you know, everyone involved that, that, that play became a very, very important part of my life and progression for me as an actor. And, um, uh, had a rough opening night in London and, and hit, and hit a real bottom, bottoming out. And then as time, but that kind of helped me understand the play more. And, um, uh, and I, I can't explain it, but it became, it became the most phenomenal acting experience I've ever had. And, um, uh, and I connected to that audience in a way that I had never connected to an audience before. And I, and I realized when they when they get quiet that they're actually still listening. Because I used to get nervous. I think opening night, everyone was so full of mink coats, and the, you know there was 270 critics in the audience, and I wasn't. You know, and I, I hadn't done a lot, a lot, whole lot of theater. You know, I, I'd done enough, but I was directing in my 20s. I wasn't acting. So these new these these opening nights were new. In New Jersey, I kind of forced my way through it and had a good night. And in London, I didn't have a good night. And, um, uh, but I learned that the quiet audience is actually still listening. And, and I got, a, I, the connection between me and them became much more intimate. And I trusted them more. And, uh, and I just, I went very, very dark and found a place that lifted me out of it. Anyway, the experiences became more and more kind of great. Uh, I don't know how else to say it. And, the audience started to give me standing ovations, and then more of them would stand when it got better. Then it got mediocre, and half of them would stand. Then it got so phenomenal for me and for them that, you know, full standing ovations. And then when I would go out uh, down the alleyway uh, from the theater, the Duchess Theater, you know, people would be waiting, milling around, waiting for me to sign autographs or whatever. And... Um, and on a mediocre night, they would just be hanging out. And on when the when the show got kind of amazing, they would give me space from the gate. And then it got a, made another level, and there was a semicircle around the gate. And then I had a night which I didn't think was possible to exist. I think it was it was one of those I flew from the first moment to to the end and was continuing to fly. Uh, in my dressing room going, I did that just happen? I don't understand how that was even possible. Where I didn't have one self-conscious moment in the entire night. Everything was full flight at full speed. And it was, or the appropriate speed, I should say. And it was absolutely what you dream about. It was, and I, and I go outside and, um, and there's nobody down, down the alleyway. Am I dreaming this? Did this wait a second? Did this happen? Um, and I walked down the alleyway, and they had st- they had started they had lined up single file, starting from under the marquee, going around the corner. So even their behavior outside was. And now, if I go back to a mediocre night, they'd all be milling about outside. It was it was amazing to me that they paid no attention. To whatever they read or whatever they heard, the they, they're, they're such an incredible audience because they're it's part of their lives. They go all the time that their their response was so directly proportional to our experience together, and I really love that. So I I go back. I have more friends in a, in 
London than I do in Los Angeles. I love going out there. I love seeing other work there. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I have a great time there. So I've done movies, TV, and if I was single and, uh, you know, childless, I would, uh, I would be living. I really, I really, I really, I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm part of a, a theater company and due to the nature of how the shows work, it's a, it has a bit more of an environmental feel to it. So there's an intrinsic relationship with the audience. And um, something that I, I find very beautiful about what you said is that there's, we sometimes forget in theater that the, there's a very specific relationship with your audience that can reflect the performance and either elevate it or, or get in the way. And I, I think that's something that I miss a lot in when I go to especially big New York productions where there's kind of just an assumption that you're going to stand. There's an assumption that it's a more of a commercial digestion of what we've seen. And I think being able to read your audience and let that feed your performance, finding that intimacy is a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I agree. And it's, um, it's, uh, in that case, a little easier to accomplish because I was talking directly to them. Um, you know, they were, uh, they were part of the play, but I remember the first time when I was acting in that play, that farce that, you know, that my acting class, we all produced together. And I remember being able to control how much the audience laughed. And that I experienced that in other, in other plays that, that had humor in it. And I thought it was, it was, it was really important to maintain the trance by controlling how much they laughed and stopping them from laughing. Uh, and that feeling is very powerful and very, very kind of amazing. Um, and I think, you know, we make the mistake sometime of just wanting a laugh. And, uh, and, and that that's a good sign. But I think it takes you out. It sometimes takes you out. This is, this is what, this is part of the experience that always uh, makes me wonder, um, about that trance thing. Now, I remember seeing the play Bent on Broadway. I knew the producer. I uh, helped him with a show off, off, off Broadway called 40 Deuce, where that was, um, Johnny Pankow's first, uh, uh, Kevin Bacon, uh, was a young actor in New York and he was in that play. There were two versions of it. And anyway, he had asked me about the casting of Bent and what I thought of Richard Gere and the part and blah, blah, blah. David Dukes played the other parts. Two, uh, uh, homosexual prisoners in a concentration camp. And there's this scene, there's a scene where they have sex. Only it's a scene where they're standing still. And the, the premise is that they're standing still for 10 minutes and if they move, they'll be shot. That's the premise. And in, and during that time of stillness, they talk to each other in a version of what you would call phone sex. They just Talk to each other uh, to orgasm, basically. That was in the play. And uh, Richard Gere and David Dukes did. <laughs> now, Richard Gere, uh, you know, I actually really like the guy. I think he's done some really great work. But he he was grinding on stage. <laughs> and, you know, he was like getting into the, the sexuality of it. And, and he started to grind. And I was almost going to yell out, shoot him. <laughs> shoot but you set up. You should be shot. 
Yeah, the given circumstances of the play, that's not okay. Right. And so it's not, and David Dukes was very, very still, I'd say. Um, and, but anyway, um, uh, when it was over, there was big applause, you know, for that scene. Big applause. And the guy in front of me goes, so much better than London. So much better than London. You know, and I went, these guys do not have this audience. You know, if you're applauding, uh, the way, uh, a particular moment is done, which they probably have read about, which I, and this guy clearly had seen before, um, you're, you're, you've lost them. You're no longer telling a story. You're, you're trying to show off. And, um, that happened, uh, when I did Glengarry on Broadway. And we have to ask yourself, why are we doing Glengarry for the 39th time? Well, I got a chance to work with Daniel Sullivan and Al Pacino and Bobby Cannavale and so on. But I don't think we ever defined why we're doing this play. And in the end, actors want to do that play because they want to, they want to say, Hey, you haven't seen the way I've done Ricky Bone. You haven't seen the way I've done. I get to do this thing. I get to do that thing. And the audience was applauding us when we made exits. And I was like, this is a disaster. This is not. When I first saw Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, originally, Joe Montaigne, and, and, um, oh God, I, I know his son, the wonderful character actor. Uh, remember the TV boss in Tootsie? Oh, yes. Not in Tootsie. It's not in Tootsie. It's the, the one with, um, Robin Williams playing the woman. Oh, and Mrs. Doubtfire? Yeah. Yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire, yeah. the TV producer. Oh, at the end, who hires him? Who hires you, him. Yes. I can yeah. see his face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm good friends with the son. That's how bad my brain is. Um, but anyway, um, where am I in the story? Help me. Oh, so you went to, you saw that was the original production and how that affected you. Yeah, and I, and I was absolutely riveted from from the beginning to the end. It was like, and, and still, people who hadn't seen the play before, they were ripped because the play is that good. But um, when theater becomes, watch me do this, and oh, let me see him do this, you know, then it, then I lose interest in it. You know, it's like, how do you get the? How do you get if you can this again? Find find a way into it that's going to make them forget that they have hands and they should applaud in the middle of the thing. And there were some actors that get upset when they, they don't applaud when they see you on stage. I made it, I, I did a thing where I made it impossible for them to applaud. And it pissed off my acting partner. Because he wanted to get the applause. But I did it, I did a little thing so they couldn't. Because I wanted them to want to know what's going to happen next. And not, you know, oh, let's see this, you know, TV star. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was just telling Lauren, um, and I know we, we need to wrap up soon, but the, the Tonys are tonight when we are recording this. Um, I just got to go see the, the band's visit. And I was telling her that there is this moment that meant so much to me as someone who grew up in the theater was watching Katrina Lenk, uh, the lead of the production, do the song that I'm pretty sure they're going to perform tonight on the telecast called Omar Sharif. But it was one of those moments that I haven't had in a few years going to a show where I felt like I was the only person yeah. in the room watching what this person was doing. And it had nothing to do with who was on stage. It had to do with what it was that trance moment, that moment where all of a sudden there was a spotlight and I was yeah. in it with her. And I was like, that's why I go. 
That's why yeah. I go to the theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have it in Hamilton, certainly. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, that happened to me several yeah, times in Hamilton. <laughs> Three of us are big yeah, Hamilton fans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to see it, um, I think, like, fourth preview at the public. Oh, wow. So not knowing anything, just seeing that great video at the White House, and yeah. I was following it. and That original uh, performance of his. Yeah, and I knew that it was uh, coming to the public soon, and, you know, long story. So that was, it was so incredible to go into something with no expectation, except for this little video from the White mm-hmm. House, know nothing about it. And and being so mesmerized that my friend and I were we have to write everything down. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to forget any of this, you know, not having a soundtrack or excuse me, a cast album. Mm-hmm. People hate me for saying that. A cast album to remember and it was uh what theater usually is ephemeral. Yes. You know, had having that moment of not any sort of outside memory to take over mm-hmm. the experience. People often ask me why I don't watch myself on on T V or movies and stuff. I don't watch myself when I do plays. Exactly. It's Good point. What, what matters to me is how you feel coming off the set. Mm-hmm. You know, if yeah. you feel like you've done everything you can, great. Um, if you didn't, why not? Uh, and how they messed it up. <laughs> I just, uh, just want to know, or how they make it great, uh, you know, better. Um, you know, every now and then I'm curious about something, but usually I just, it's, it's the experience you have, you know, acting that, uh, matters to me. You know? Very quickly, cause we, we know we don't want to, we're almost probably out of time here, but sort of piggybacking back. This is such an amazing conversation, but quickly you can in, indulge us as West Wing fans. Indeed. I've always been fascinated. And again, we hope not to take anything away from West Wing Weekly, which. What are the inspirations for us to do this show? Is I know you've talked about in the final season of the series that you believe that Toby is covering for somebody mm-hmm. as the leak. Uh, we have our theories as to who we you think do. he's covering for, but I I don't know if you have come up with that backstory yourself. But I don't think I've ever heard you mention who you do think he is covering for. Who do you think it is? We actually both think that it's Andy. We think it's Andy. Who's Andy again? My, my Your wife. wife. Your wife. The mother of the children. Yeah. Mother of the twins. <laughs> uh, Kathleen York. It was. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to ever say. Okay. I, I actually love that you're not going to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's great. I was always curious if that was a choice or it just never no one asked you. Uh, they actually did ask me at some point because they kept uh, writing. Uh, like I said, I would do the scene where I say I'm the leak with CJ. Uh, first of all, I thought as horrible as the storyline was, that was a great scene. It's um, a great scene. Yeah, yeah, it is a great scene. Uh, the idea of being silent for that many minutes, uh, you know, till television show is kind of cool. But, um, the way we, some, some, uh, some, I got, uh, had dinner in England at the house of a, of a writer for the Guardian. And his wife was also a journalist. And this was shortly after that aired. And they go, we decided that based on what we saw in your right eye during those moments with CJ, that you were telling her that you didn't do it. And (laughs) that there was somebody else that was responsible. And it was like, I've never seen, I've never heard anyone like hone down the messaging to which eye they were getting it from. It was real, it's an expressive eye. It's really very lovely, actually. And uh, they had actually studied the moment 
so much that they decided that that, and that's, and they were right. That's what exactly what I was communicating to her. Um, which is cool that they saw that. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, in the, in the end, um, they, they, I told them because I would get scripts, uh, I did it because, Toby, I did it because. And I'd say, I'm never going to say that. I'm never going to say I did it because, because I didn't mm-hmm. do it. So, um, don't write that. I'll say, you know, uh, this guy has a, has a, you know, has a blanket of wool on it, if that's what you want me to say. But I will not say I did it because. So stop writing that. And yet they wrote it about four or five times. So finally, John Wells got frustrated and said, well, well, can you tell me your story? And I did, but it was convoluted because it doesn't, it didn't make sense. Right? The, uh, the storyline, no sense. So my theory, uh, um, or the only way that I could say, the only way I could go through the storyline was to know that, that I didn't do it. And that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah. So they, they were stuck in the how to, <laughs> how to move forward. And they literally called me from the writers conference in Hawaii asking me, why would Toby have done this? And I said he wouldn't have done this. But if he did, what what would be the reasons? This is after they wrote it. And I said there are no reasons because he would never have done it. But if he did do it, can you tell? And then I would have to, all right, fine. If the if he did it, it first of all it would have to be after two years of fighting with the president over it, um, uh, and after he told the president that he was going to do it. And, uh, you know, and a hundred other things, but these would be his reasons. You know, that's how painful it was. Um, mm-hmm. those last year or two of Western was really, really hard for me to do. I was going to say that going back to you, what you said earlier about working with, uh, with Allison and their relationship. For me, that scene is all about the looks between the two of you when you say it. Mm. Like, that's what. Yeah. That's what makes that scene always stand out is the relationship between the two of you. Yeah. It's gut wrenching. When you feel for these mm-hmm. two characters as we have, and I'm sure the audience has, because that's why we keep tuning in is because we love these characters and also the great mm-hmm. dialogue. But it, yeah, it's an emotionally wrenching scene to watch, mm-hmm. let alone I'm sure to act in. It's a great premise to have somebody make a confession. And then the rules of the, of the, of the, scene, the rules of the moment are you're not allowed to talk. Not, oh, it's just painful. You can't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't speak. No, well, there's no one I would rather have done that scene with than uh, Alison Jamie. And you can tell. You can see that it's a, it's a master class for, for fellow actors to watch because there's just so much happening. That is something that I, like you said, it doesn't happen that often on television. You get to do that on, on stage because no one can, no one can turn the channel if there's nothing happening. Yeah. But it's great. And so it's a lot of trust. It's great when it happens on television is, uh, is that, is that you can see it. You can see every little, like those writers in England, I can see from your right eye. You know, it's hard just to do that from the balcony of the Broadway theater. Exactly. Yeah. So something else has to communicate that. Some body, some mm-hmm. larger physical uh, mm-hmm. action has to has to communicate that. But um, that's the 
pleasure of television is that when the work is great, you can really hone in on on behavior, and behavior can mm-hmm. be very subtle and very um, particular and specific. Mm-hmm. We get to go back and watch it again as well, and and pick it apart, find now those you moments can. in your eyes. Yeah, in the old days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the old days, so, you know, we didn't have VCRs when I was young. You know, VCRs was a big, and then it became such a pain in the ass, and they wouldn't mark the tapes. I would never like mark the tapes. I didn't know which tape I had. And I mostly just taped sports, you know. So, uh, yeah, this idea of, I didn't grow up re-watching, uh, things. So I, you know, it's not in my DNA to constantly do that. But, you know, I, I, I've done it for movies. You know, I've seen, I just showed The Godfather to my daughter. You know, so that, that had to, I knew every line. I knew every moment. I knew when he picked up the cat, when he dropped the cat back to, put, you know what I mean? Put it back down. Every single moment of that movie from watching it so many times. It's, it's kind of cool to be able to do that. Well, uh, you've been so generous with your time. Is there anything that you remember about your experience on Murphy that we haven't covered? Then I'm guessing the food was probably pretty good. Yeah, yeah. right? Good, good, good crafty. Yeah, we've heard good things about the craft services at Murphy. Yeah, the sitcoms always had the better. You know, we were, we, we were, in the first year of, the, of uh, the West Wing, Drew Carey was next door. And he would invite us over to partake in their smorgasbord, which was phenomenal compared to our donuts, you know. He had all kinds of meat, fresh meats, and rye bread, and pickles, and, you know, slaw. Mm, like a good yeah. rye bread. Um, I don't, I don't. Maybe, uh, maybe I should have uh, seen the episode, but how can you see the episode? Can you see it? Can you find it? That is the that is the big problem is yes. um because of licensing issues is um is the official word uh for for the music because of all the Motown on the show, uh the Murphy Brown is only out on DVD for one season. You're kidding. It's uh it's it's become a huge thing and it's actually why one of the big reasons we, we started really, we kind of started the podcast to kind of get it back out there even though we knew the music rights mm-hmm. were the issue and. And this was before we got into what is now the the binge watching culture. This was before box sets were selling that well. And Murphy Brown, I think at the time was a bit of a risk because the the major demographic was a little older. And and yeah, so now we're trying to prove, especially with this revival, which came up after we had started, but we really want to talk about how it is much like the West Wing, very relevant topically and that we think it's it's worth putting that money in so we can get the rest of it out there. Yeah, I'm honestly surprised that it hasn't happened already with the revival, but, you know, I guess contracts are a different thing. We'll see. Once we get past season one, we're going to be kind of like archaeologists. That's kind of, that's kind of cool. I, uh, I had a mustache, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you did. You look very different. I think that's something that most people yes. who know you from West Wing only will be very surprised. Yeah. You're very untoby like I think both scenes, by the way, are funny. I think you're very funny in Love and War. Yes. Um, both sort of... Uh, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you're very young and nervous in Murphy Brown. And it's it's very it's very clean cut and put together. It's yeah, it's yeah. really fun and to watch. You're very reserved in Love and War. Like I would say, like they're not definitely different characters, but um, in the same milieu in a way. Mm-hmm. But uh, particularly because knowing you, if people only know you from West Wing, they I think that you're unrecognizable, which mm-hmm. is a compliment, obviously, as as an actor. But um, mm-hmm. it's like you're a different person. Yeah, no, I didn't know I was funny in Love and War. No one told me. <laughs> you were busy again. Yes, you were. <laughs> you were a little preoccupied. It was three in the morning. Busy beginning the journey with my son, yeah. Yeah. Love and War, you can watch. It is on Amazon. Yep. It's all on Amazon right now. Yeah. Except for one part where they replaced Joanna Gleason's singing voice with not her singing voice, which is sad. 
she have a great voice? I've seen her on Broadway. Yeah, yeah she's amazing. She sings a copywritten song. And an example, like with, with Murphy Brown, mm-hmm. there isn't as much music in it, but she sings a copywritten song and they replace her her voice with another song. Mm-hmm. I don't, yeah, all this right stuff is beyond my head. Yeah, There's it's a, a lot. Wonder Years had a problem, why, why it took so long for it to mm-hmm. come out. There's a lot of temp music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quantum Leap has a lot of temp yep. music where they just take out the music and then it doesn't fit with the original idea of the creators because it doesn't go with the action. It's kind of sad. And the, and the era, I'm sure as well. Exactly. Well, and some of these like wonder years and, and Murphy using all the Motown uh, as a lot of times commentary about what's happening. You miss, you miss the snapshot of what it is. It's, it really was, these were, these were especially shows that were, that was another character was the the music that underscored it. Yeah. But who knew, you know, na- <laughs> none of us knew who knew that this was going to be a thing that mm-hmm. you would sign off on. So another show that people keep asking me about but that the few that saw it that remember, which is still my favorite character, which was Relativity. Oh, so good. Would yeah. you remember that? Mm-hmm. Do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Around that time, wasn't it? It was around 90. No, it was 95 or six. Because yeah, we. I think it's right. So we were laughing at the fact that you you had a really good year. Like, well, I, it was probably ninety three actually, but in ninety four you have ten different credits, yeah. all from that single year. And I think that came after that one. Yeah, I think it did too. Mm-hmm. It's funny how things meld in your brain. <laughs> I left. They let me go from Relativity to do the Lost World. It was a lost. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. Now, and so I, I I've told Ed Zwick and Jason Kadams, Marshall Herskowitz, uh back then. This is now 22 years ago. Uh, and I said, you have lifetime favors whenever you want them. Because they lived up to their word. Because I said I wanted to do film. And they let me go. Even though they were loving the character. and Because I only had like 10, 7 out of 13 or 10. One of those silly things they used to do. And, and uh, now they wanted me in all of their shows. And they reversed that and let me go for 10 weeks to... Uh, and wow, that is Spiel- yeah. Spielberg was like loving my character. I ran into him in the elevator up in Eureka where we were shooting at the time. Because I'm loving your character, I'm thinking of keeping him alive. And all I could think of was, I gotta go back to Ed's way. <laughs> and I, <laughs> you gotta I, kill me. <laughs> I said, you know, you know, when if you kill me off, then all bets are off, and and that that's gonna be great for your movie. And he goes, and he said, you know what, you might be right about that. It's pretty bad how you die. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I told Sheila, and Sheila goes, do you have any idea how much money we just threw away? And I went, shit, you're right. And so the next day at lunch, I said to Stephen, I'm rethinking this death thing. (laughs) And he goes, no, 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 it's great. I'm going to give you a hero's death. And that's how that death ended up becoming, like, me saving him, them from getting off the cliff and being torn apart by the two T-Rexes. It became a heroic death because he had... Yeah. That's nice. All because you wanted to go back to Same work. Same time as Relativity, and yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I checked it. So Relativity was 96 to 97. Mm-hmm. Thank you so Thank much you so for much. spending so much time with us. We've admired your work for a while, and, mm-hmm. and it's been a real pleasure. But you guys, have, you guys have been great. Thank you so much. Nice Thank meeting you. you. You guys, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.